Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Good to have you guys here. We are on the front end of a new series this fall. We're taking a look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, a place that we don't find ourselves all that often. And uh, what we've seen so far is that Genesis is so foundational, it is so important to our faith, not because Genesis shows us the how of creation, but because Genesis is showing us the who and the why of creation. We talked about how Genesis tells us about who God is and what he is like and why he created us. And what we said is that when we understand who God is and why he created us and why he created this world, that really changes us. It, it fundamentally changes us, changes everything about who we are and how we relate to God and how we relate to the rest of the world that he has made, which we find ourselves in. What we've said so far is that the, the how, it's really interesting, but the who and the why are what are transformative because the who and the why, they have everything to do with our identity and our purpose. And for the last, uh, last week, we uh, took a closer look at uh, the day six of creation and the creation of humanity at the end of Genesis chapter one and, and how Genesis chapter one talks to us a lot about the identity and the purpose of humanity. What we saw is that unlike any other part of creation, humanity is made in the image of God. And what that means is that we both, that we possess the capacity to know God and to reflect his nature and his character and that we are commissioned by him as his representatives to embody those things in the way that we relate and, and interact with this world. What we said is that Genesis 1, it makes a really big deal about humanity being made in the image of God. It's the red, it's the stoplight with the LED lights around it that's flashing. The way that the text is written, it is, it is really deliberately trying to highlight and show us how big deal this is, how important it is that humanity is made in the image of God. And what we saw last week is that because we're made in the image of God, that, that transforms and it informs our identity and our purpose and our relationships. And we said that the identity of every human is that of an image bearer of God because we're made in the image of God. Every person, everywhere, in every age, no matter what, has infinite value and dignity and worth. And that's because we're made in the image of God. And humanity uniquely bears God's image in a way that no other part of creation does. And we said that that truth, that transforms our purpose. Because instead of believing that this world and this life is ultimately about us, and about us finding our happiness or our joy or our fulfillment, what we saw is that because we're made in God's image, our purpose then is to bring glory to God. Our purpose then as his representatives is that we would find fulfillment and happiness and joy in living out our identity as his people, as his representatives. And so what we saw is that that is limitly rich and deep. It gives meaning and purpose to every area of our life, even the mundane parts, even the, the painful, hard parts of life. And also it's an identity and a purpose that can never, ever be taken away. Because it's part of the essence of who we are. It's not something we make for ourselves. And finally, we saw last week about how being made in the image of God, it changes the way that we relate to the rest of creation, which includes other people, other image bearers of God and nature. And what we saw is that regardless of gender or race or religion or wealth or disability, we honor and we respect and we dignify all people. Because they bear God's image. Not because we agree with whatever everyone believes or does, but because they bear God's image. And so they have infinite value and dignity and worth. And so we treat people that way. Similarly, we relate to nature as stewards, acting as God's representatives. And we don't worship creation. And we don't abuse creation. 
Instead, we relate to creation as God's stewards with an attitude of representing him and being his authority uh, here on earth. And so the way that we relate to others, the way that we relate to creation has everything to do with us being God's image bearers, his representatives here. And I, I go over that background because where we're headed this morning has everything to do with where we were at last week. For the what we'll see as we study Genesis 1 and 2 in the next three weeks in a row here, what we're going to see is that we just scratched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. We just scratched the tip of that. We ended last week by seeing how being made in God's image, it informs and it transforms our relationships with the, with the rest of creation. And this week as we study Genesis 2 together, what we're going to do is take a closer look at what is probably the most significant relationship that being made in the image of God transforms. And that's the relationship between men and women. As we continue to see the, the imago Dei, the image of God, the doctrine of the image of God fleshed out here in Genesis chapter 2, what I want us to see this morning is that our identity and our purpose as God's image bearers, it informs and it transforms the relationship between men and women. And this has foundational implications for how we understand huge things like gender and sexuality and marriage. And tragically, I think these issues are almost always talked about negatively. They're almost always talked about in, in, in difficult, negative terms, in the context of what we're not supposed to do, or how we mess it up, or, or how we don't do what God tells us to do, or, or, or how the Bible is just antiquated, or backwards, or even just dangerous. Instead, this morning, as we study what I want to do, is I want to show you the good news, the liberating life-giving good news that Genesis lays out for us as we think about the relationship of men and women together, how that informs how we understand the very purpose of that relationship and the very purpose of our, our gender and our sexuality and marriage. You see, the problem is when we don't understand the design for something, when we don't understand its purpose, when we don't understand what something is for, we're always going to misuse it. We're always going to mistreat it. We're, always, we're never going to understand it, and so we'll always misuse it. You see, I don't really work out. Maybe you can tell, right? Um, but in college, I had a friend who loved working out. And so he would suck me in, and we would go work out together. And so uh, one time, I remember I was meeting him there, and something came up, and he had to cancel last minute. And I thought, well, I'm already here. Might as well just give it a go, right? And like, you know all those fail memes of people, right? That's like every part of what happened with me that day. I was like trying to use stuff like... You know, like, just look, I'm sure there were football players that were just, like, crying on the floor, laughing, watching me, right? The problem is, I did not understand the design or purpose of any of that equipment. I had no idea what it was for. I did not understand how to use it. Because I didn't understand its purpose, I, I really didn't use it right. You see, we've got, the same is true as we think about the relationship between men and women. We've got to look to the designer. We've got to look to the one who gives it its purpose, if we want to learn how to use that relationship rightly. But as I mentioned at the start, what I want to do this morning is show us more than just God's design for that. What I want to do is I want to show you how it's good news for us. I want to show you how God's design and his purpose for the relationship between men and women, for our gender and our sexuality and for marriage, I want to show you how it is good news you see, you and I, in this world, we will never be willing to put ourselves under the authority of God's word if we don't see it as good news. We will never be willing to put ourselves under the authority of God and his word if we don't see it as good news. Good news for us and good news for our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. 
that's really good news. <laughs> it has been good news to me this week as I have prepped and as I have studied. Man, and I have prayed with tears this week. with tears that it would be good news for you. That you see God's purpose and his design for the relationship between men and women and for how that informs and transforms how we see our gender and our sexuality and marriage. Oh, I pray that it would be good news to you. The truth is that I do not have the power to make that happen. <laughs> Only God does. And so let's pray as we begin, as we study God's word this morning. God, we just come to you this morning, and we, God, I just, like, I just extra feel a dependence on you this morning. God, I know that's always true, but I sense it especially this morning, God, and I just pray that we, that God, I just pray that you be gracious to empower me to speak your words. God, I pray you open my mouth when I should and shut it when it needs to. God, I pray that you would be the one by your spirit who informs the tone and the posture of our time together this morning. God, I pray by your spirit you would give us soft and teachable hearts so that we might be able to hear and, and put ourselves under the authority of your word, God. And most of all, God, I pray that you would show us how your word is good news for us, that it's life-giving. It's, it's not a burden, but it's a life-giving opportunity to live under your good authority, God. And so, God, for our good and for your glory, I just pray that you'd be gracious to, to cause those things to be true this morning. We need you. We rely on you. Our hope's in you pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, a few quick things before we dive into our passage in Genesis 2 this morning. If, if you read Genesis 2, you're going to think, hey, uh, I think we covered that already. Uh, wasn't that all in Genesis 1? And uh, we did. Uh, it wasn't just Moses who had massive ADHD, right? Um, my undergrad degree is in video production, so let me explain it to you this way. Genesis 1 is kind of like that opening shot to the movie. It's the wide shot. It sets up where you're at and the city you're in or what's going on or the context of the situation. It doesn't have a massive amount of detail, but you see a lot of scope. Genesis 2 is kind of like that next shot in the movie where it's the close-up. It's not telling a different story. It's not telling a, a new version of the story. It's zooming in so you can see the detail of what's going on, and that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2. And so since our study in Genesis 2 has its very context, its root sense. It's a zoom in on what happened in Genesis 1 and the, the day 6 of Genesis 1. I just want to read a few verses of that passage before we dive into Genesis 2 as we study this morning. So that's where we're headed. Genesis 1, we're going to just read verses 26 to 28 and then jump into the second half of Genesis 2 this morning. Genesis 1, 26 begins this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Jump forward here. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18, and so the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper that was found. 
And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her near to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Before we dive in this morning as we study our passage in Genesis 2, I just want to acknowledge a few things. One, we are going to be addressing some really difficult stuff this morning. Some issues that fly in the face of basically everything our culture wants us to believe and think about how we think about these kinds of things. And for many of us, these issues, they hit really close to home. As soon as I mention the words gender or sexuality, there are friends that you have, there are family members that you have that come to mind. And I want you to know that is true for me too. I do not approach this issue from a distance, and nor do I approach it lightly. Additionally, I want to acknowledge that, that this is an area that the church has in general admittedly done a pretty tragically poor job of talking about. There's been a lot of hurt in the way these things have been discussed. But knowing all of that, knowing that we're walking into a field full of cultural landmines, knowing that there is a lot of hurt around these discussions, knowing that there is a risk that what we talk about this morning might offend some of you, I think it is incredibly important that we study these passages and these words. One, because God's word just directly talks about it. And so if we don't look at that, we're just going to be ignoring what God has to say. And two, what we think and what we believe about these issues is foundational for living out our identity and our purpose as God's image bearers. And so how we think about gender and sexuality and marriage and the relationship of men and women, you just need to hear me on this. These are not primarily moral issues. They're identity issues. They're not about, it's not a moral issue thing. It's an identity issue thing. And that's why it has such importance for us as we think about it. So as we study this morning, I hope what you sense in me is a, is a posture and a tone of humility and of grace and of compassion, but also one of urgent importance. You see, the stakes are so incredibly high as we think about this because it's about our identity and it's about our purpose as humanity. And so the question is, What does Genesis tell us about our identity as image bearers of God and how that affects the relationship between men and women? I think there's three things I want to show us this morning in the passage. One is that the passage talks about the equality of men and women as God's image bearers. Two is that the passage talks about the necessity of men and women as God's image bearers. And third, it talks about the outworking or the implications of men and women as God's image bearers. So first... Genesis 1, 27 and 28, shows us the incredible equality of men and women as God's image bears. Verse 27 says that both men and women are made in the image of God. There is no difference in their quality. There is no difference in their value. Men and women equally are created in the image of God. Verse 28 says that both men and women are blessed by God. When he says, be fruitful and multiply, and he blesses them, both men and women are blessed equally. Verse 28, both men and women are commissioned by God as his ruling representatives. It's not men first and then women. It's men and women together are commissioned equally. You see, men and women both equally bear the image of God. Men and women both have the same identity and dignity and value and worth as God's image bears. 
Genesis tells us that men and women as God's image bearers are equally created. They are equally blessed. They are equally commissioned. But what Genesis 1 doesn't tell us is that men and women are the same. In fact, it emphasizes the distinction between male and female. And that brings us to the second thing the passage highlights this morning, the necessity of men and women as God's image bearers. See, men and women are different. We are physically different. We are emotionally different. We are different in all kinds of ways. You can see that from a very young age. And that difference is not an added bonus, nor is it a happy accident, and it's not a liability either. It's a necessity. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Not good. That should, that should like shock us. Because like 17 million times in the first chapter, God saw it, it was good. 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 And you get to Genesis 2, not good. And you're like, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. That's different. Hold up, right? You see, that is, there's something really significant here about the incompletion of the passage. The incompletion, the, the tension that the passage holds until woman is created. You see, creation is not complete until both men and women are present. And creation is not good, it is not very good until both men and women are present. The question is why? Because Adam alone cannot fulfill his identity and his purpose as God's image-bearing representative. It says he needed a helper. So you and I, when we, when we think about that word helper, we've got to talk about that for a minute, because when you and I think about that word, we think about an assistant, we think about like somebody who just lends a helping hand. I ask my kids, hey, do you guys want to be my sous chef when we're making dinner? You want to be my helper, right? That's not, that's not how the Bible uses that word. That word helper there, what it, it doesn't mean that. Helper is most often used, in fact, when it's talking about God, and it's not talking about an assistant or somebody who just lends a helping hand. It's talking about, here about God, and when it says helper, it's talking about a necessary or indispensable ally. The definition of a helper here is one of a necessary or indispensable ally. Let me tell you, I would not describe Emma and Caleb's help at dinner time as necessary or indispensable, <laughs> right? But when I think about God, I, mean, I absolutely think about him that way. The Bible talks about him over and over and over as our helper. He is absolutely necessary, and he is absolutely indispensable, that's the same word that God, the Bible uses to talk about men and women and the relationship they have together. The woman is not an assistant to man. The woman is a necessary, indispensable ally. That's how we need to think about that. Verse 20 says that among all the animals, there was no suitable helpers found. Why? Because... Humanity needed sameness in order to bear God's image. Adam's first response when he sees Eve in verse 23 is not, wow, a naked lady. I mean, I'm sure that came pretty quickly afterwards, but, but his response when he, when he sees her, he says, like me. His response is same, right? He says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What is he saying? He's saying, I have spent the last, four, I've spent all this time and I've seen all these animals and not one of them was like me. And he sees the woman, and his first response is, like me. You are like me, same. 
You see, humanity needs sameness in order to bear the image of God. But what God creates and what man's necessary ally is, is not just another just like him. No, because humanity doesn't only need sameness to bear the image of God. Humanity needs difference in order to bear the image of God. They need, we need distinction to bear God's image. You see, in order to live out our identity and our purpose as God's image bearers, we need both sameness and difference. We need both unity and diversity because the God whose image we bear, whose likeness we reflect, whose image we show to the world, that's what characterizes him. Remember back in Genesis 1.26, it says, remember the pattern changed over and over throughout the days. It was let there be, let there be. Genesis gets to man and it says, let us make. It's only when God creates humanity that he is referred to in the plural. You see, God is Trinity. Just as there is one Trinity with three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is one humanity with two parts, male and female. There is sameness and there is difference. And what we see is within the Trinity, there is perfect unity and perfect equality, but there is distinction. Throughout scriptures, what we see is that each member of the Trinity, they functions in different ways, and they submit to one another in different ways, and they relate to one another in different ways, but there is absolute equality and absolute interdependence. You cannot take away one of the part of the Trinity and still have God. They are necessary to one another. And what the Bible is abundantly clear on is that while there is perfect unity and equality in the Godhead, there is difference. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, there is distinction there. And so Genesis is showing that our sameness as humans, as well as our difference in genders, are a necessary and crucial component of our very identity as God's image bearers and our purpose as his commissioned representatives. Jen Wilkins, she puts it this way. She writes, this does not mean that men and women exercise authority or bear God's image in identical or interchangeable ways. What it does mean, however, is that both men and women are necessary for the image of God to be demonstrated to the world. See, this is why the equality of men and women matters so much to us as followers of Jesus. Because it's about the image of God and about identity. And this is why, as Christians, why gender matters to us. Why it's not just a thing we can have an opinion about. It matters because it's about God's identity. It's about our purpose and identity as his image bearers. That's why it matters. It's not about morality. It is not about personality. It is not about culture. It's about identity. It's about purpose. And that leads us to the last thing that Genesis shows about, about how our identity and our purpose as image bearers, it informs and it transforms the relationship between men and women. Genesis shows us, that the, shows us the outworking, it shows us the implications of the equality and the necessity of men and women as God's image bearers. Verse 24 says this, that is why, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You see, it's because of our identity and our purpose, and it's in light of our sameness and our difference as God's image bearers that God introduces his design for sexuality and for marriage. You see, humanity uniquely bears God's image. Unlike any other part of creation, we have the capacity and the calling to both know God and to relate to nature and to the rest of creation as his representatives, as his people, and our sexuality is one of the ways that we do that. 
You see, our world wants us to believe that our sexuality is unto us. It is about us. It is about our happiness. It is about our fulfillment. It is about our joy. And that because of that, it should be done in whatever way we see fit as long as we're not hurting anybody else. What the Bible says is your sexuality is not about you. It is an incredibly good gift that God gives. It is a blessing. It's talked about that way over and over throughout Scripture. But it's not about you. It's about God. And humanity in our sexuality and in marriages uniquely reflects something about God's character and about his nature. And so we, we think about those things and we do those things as he designed it because it's ultimately not about us, it's about him. You see, God's design for sexuality is one man and one woman inside the context of marriage, not because this is better for society, not because there is less heartache, not because just waiting till, until you are married to have sex somehow magically makes that experience better. No, it's because intimacy and the intimacy of sex between a man and a woman inside the unity and security of the covenant relationship of marriage, in, in doing it that way, we reflect God's image. We show the world something about who he is. It's part of our identity as God's image bearers. And more than that, we are being who God has made us to be. We are being our most true selves when we are living out our identity as his image bearers. God really spoke to me this week through a message by a guy named Sam Alberry. Sam is a pastor in England who speaks and write openly, writes openly about same-sex attraction and his own same-sex attraction. And his words just spoke really deeply to me this week. He wrote this. He said, The lie that I am tempted to believe is that being gay is who I really am. And so I should just stop fighting it and I should run with it. He says this, But the truth is that the most true me is found in my identity in Christ and not in my sexuality. And therefore, when I am striving to be Christ-like, I am not going against the grain. I am going with it. I am most being me when I am pursuing godliness. You see, while I don't personally resonate with Sam's struggle with same-sex attraction, I so often feel the tension he is talking about. I so often feel that tension of believing a lie about my identity and who I really am and feeling like submitting to God and submitting to his ways are, are contrary to who I am at my core. I often tell my daughter, Emma, this. I say, I know how hard it is to listen and obey. It's really hard for me too. It's hard to obey. It is hard to follow Jesus. You see, because at the root of our reluctance to obey God and our resistance to submitting every part of our lives under his authority is our unwillingness to let go of our self-made identities. In her book, Openness Unhindered, Rosaria Butterfield, she writes, sexual sin is so hard to deal with because sexual sin becomes a sin of identity. Our culture says that you are your sexuality, that your sexuality, it is a it defines who you are. That means that everyone's sexuality must always be affirmed because it is at the core of who you are. And to reject that about who you are is to fundamentally reject a person. That's why it is the unforgivable sin in our world to question that, to even have a discussion about that. It is the unforgivable sin because it is seen as questioning someone's very identity. And see, this is why as Christians who hold to God's design for sex and for marriage being between one man and woman are not just seen as wrong or backwards, 
but as hateful and dangerous, no matter their tone or posture. You see, in our world, defining our own identity, it is heralded as freedom. It is heralded as liberation. You define who you are. You see, the, the, the problem with that is that that is not liberation and it is not freedom. It's a chain around your neck. You see, if you are your sexuality, then sexual fulfillment is the ultimate key to everything. And a life is not worth living unless you have sexual fulfillment, unless you have that as part of your life. And you see, and that is a self-fulfilling prophecy because sex can never be what we want it to be. It can never really satisfy. It can never really fulfill. It can never really bring lasting life and joy and satisfaction because it was never meant to do that. You see, our sexuality, it was meant to bring glory to God, and it can never do that if our sexuality is about us, if it's unto us, if it's for us. Instead, if it's about us, it will always crush you, and it will crush whoever you are intimate with, whoever that is, because you and I, we cannot bear the weight of our own manufactured identities, and that will crush us, and it will crush whoever we are with. Oh, see, but the good news about the gospel is that sex is not the key to fulfillment. It is not who we are at our core. You see, Jesus was the most full and complete human ever, and he never had sex. The gospel tells us that our freedom and our liberation is not found in, in making our own identity. It's found in living out the one we have been given as God's image bearers. Our sexuality is part of God's good design by which we join all of creation in worship and praise unto him in a way that only we can as his image bears. And when we reduce ourselves to our self-made identities, whether that's our sexuality or something else that we root our identity in, what we are doing is rejecting God and rejecting the identity that he has given us. And more than that, we are missing out on the life and the blessing that, that his ways offer. So the question then is, how do we respond to God's word? Note note that I said we, not they or them or someone else. I said we. How do we respond to God's word? The right response to God's word for us is always to repent and believe. Sam Allary, he puts it best. He says, repentance begins with confession, and we need to be clear Not just that all of us are sinners, but that all of us are sexual sinners. Maybe you don't wrestle with gender dysphoria. Maybe you do not wrestle with same-sex attraction. Maybe you waited until you were married to have sex. But the truth is is that the only one who was ever entirely sexually pure was Jesus. And you need to hear this. You are not him. Jesus says that sexual purity is not just about what you do in the physical world. It's about what you do in your mind as well. None of us are spotless. None of us have a perfect record. None of us can call ourselves clean in that way. In high school, Hannah's brother, my wife, my wife's brother came out to their family as gay. And over the years, Hannah and I sought to just love Zach and show him, just care for him, make sure he felt welcomed in our home, make sure he felt welcome as part of our family. Not everybody in the extended family took that approach. One day out of the blue, I remember getting a phone call from, from Zach, and he, he and his current boyfriend wanted to know what Hannah and I thought about homosexuality and about what the Bible has to say about it, and I was, I was caught off guard. That came out of the blue. 
And I remember fumbling around with words, but remember what I remember saying is just that I think that the Bible is clear that the only right context for sex is between a man and a woman inside the context of marriage. And it wasn't because of this conversation, but within the next year, Zach had cut off all ties with everyone in the entire extended family. And despite our best efforts, we have not seen or heard from him in over four or five years. And I have thought about that conversation. thought about it a lot over the years. And I don't regret what I said. What I regret is what I did not say. Because I wish so badly what I would have said. What I would have done is to confess my own sin to him, to acknowledge my own sexual sin to him. What I wish I would have done is said that you and I, we are no different. We both look to other things than Jesus to satisfy us and to give life and to be a blessing to us. We both are tempted to make our an identity for ourselves and to live in light of the ones that we make for ourselves instead of the ones that God has given to us. Man, I have wept over that for years. Man, what I would give to say those words to my brother. And I don't know if those things would have changed our, our relationship, but I know that they are true, and I know that they would have honored him and honored the Lord whose image he bears. You see, the message for all of us is the same. It's one of repentance. Sam Alberry again, he just, just so poignantly writes, he says, repentance is about turning around, facing a new direction. He says, all of us are facing the wrong way. There is not a different message for the heterosexual or the homosexual. All of us need to reorient our lives around Jesus. And the gospel, he says this, which just caught my heart this week. He said, there will be things that all of us will need to turn around on that feel fundamental to who we are. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus writes to the, saying to the disciples, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves. They must take up their cross and follow me. You see, denying yourself is about saying no to who you have thought you were your whole life and about saying yes to Jesus instead and about who he says that you are. That will happen for everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. And I just need you to hear this. If that has not happened for you, then I'm not sure it's the gospel of Jesus that you have been hearing. Because Jesus calls all of us to lay our lives down and to reorient them around him. If there's nothing in your life that Jesus has called you to lay down and reorient around him, I'm not sure it's his gospel you've been believing or hearing. And so the question then is how? How do we turn from sin? How do we turn from our manufactured identities to our true identity as God's image bearers? And this is where the second part of that response comes all for us in. Right? We need to repent, but more than that, we need to believe. 
It's here again that Rosaria Butterfield, her words stuck out to me this week. She writes, stepping into God's story means abandoning a deeply held desire to make meaning of our own lives on our own terms based on the preciousness of our own feelings. We must leave and cleave or we will never understand what it means that Christ died in our place. She goes on to say this, we can only take this leap if Christ jumps for us. We can only take that leap if he jumps for us. You see, while we can beg him with a, contra a contrite heart, we cannot accomplish salvation or repentance or sanctification on our own. See, the truth is that we are all sinners by nature and choice, every last one of us. Sin has cracked our proverbial image-bearing mirrors. But there was one who came, whose, whose mirror was not broken, who perfectly imaged the Father. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. That is who you and I were called to be and who we have not been. Where we failed, Jesus did not. He bore God's image perfectly and he did it. You need to hear this. He did it for you. He did it in your place, knowing that you would never be able to do it without him. And so when we confess our sin and our failure to live out our identity and our purposes, God's image bears, and we put our faith in Jesus to redeem us and to restore us and to be the one who saves us, what happens is by the power of the Spirit, he begins to put those mirrors of our lives back together so that we might image God rightly and reflect his character and his nature to the world. So more and more and more we begin by the Spirit's power to look like Jesus. Little by little, more and more. And that's what being a Christian is all about. That's the definition of what it means to follow Jesus, is to look like him more and more and more by his power made alive in you. What happens is Jesus restores our broken mirrors. As we start looking more and more like him on the inside and on the out, it will transform the way that we relate to other men and women. Four things I think that changes. I just want to quickly point this out. One is we are transformed to the image of God. We will see that everyone is made in the image of God and we will treat everyone that way. Jen Wilkin just so helpfully writes this week. She said, the first step towards treating someone with contempt is to look at them and think, not like me. The first step towards contempt is to look at someone and think, not like me. You see, we all need to hear this. When we, when we call the value or the worth of anyone into question by looking down on them or by questioning because of their sexuality, we disgrace the image of God. It's a slap to God in the face. You see, we must be as disgusted by our own sin as we are by anyone else's. And we must treat everyone as God's image bearers because everyone has value and dignity and worth. There are so many Christians who have missed this and who treat people who they disagree with with contempt. What we need to be reminded is that we are the same. We bear God's image. Because we bear God's image as he deserves Secondly, by honoring the 
the honoring other image bearers does not mean that we always affirm or agree with everyone's views or expressions of gender and sexuality and marriage. One pastor I thought just helpfully pointed out this week, he says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone, you must fear or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means you must agree with everything they believe or do. He says, both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You see, and what the gospel does is it empowers us to be compassionate. It empowers us to be humble because what the gospel tells us is that we are wicked sinners, no better or worse than anyone else. The gospel is the ultimate leveling plane because what it tells us is that we all desperately and equally need Jesus. But also, the gospel empowers us to call others to life in him calls us to invite others to find life at the only place that life is found. Third, as we're transformed into the image of Jesus, we will increasingly understand that the good news of the gospel is not that we will never face temptation of sin, but that we'll be able to choose to follow Jesus. You see, Rosario Butterfield, again, just so helpful. I know I've quoted her a number of times this morning. Again, she writes, While it is true that in conversion we are new creatures in Christ, it is also true that on this side of the resurrection we will all struggle with all manner of sin, including, if God permits it, same-sex attraction. And so, yes, we are all born this way. And even after we are born again, we will all struggle with sin until we die and enter glory or Jesus returns. She says, it is not the absence of sin that makes you a believer. It is the presence of Jesus in the midst of your sin that sets you apart from the world. You see, the invitation for us is to call our friends and our neighbors and coworkers to reorient our lives around Jesus, not a different sexuality. Jesus is the one who reorients everything about who we are. And lastly, as we reflect the Jesus image more and more, we will avoid idolizing marriage. You see, one of the hardest things for our brothers and our sisters in Christ who wrestle with same-sex attraction is that the church holds up marriage as this pinnacle, the ultimate expression of what it means to flourish as humanity, and yet at the same time says, this is not for you. It is right for us to value marriage, but it is wrong for us to idolize it. Marriage is a unique, but it is not an ultimate expression of God's image. 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, Christianity, what we see is Christianity is the very first religion in all the world that lifts up a life of singleness as a viable lifestyle. In every other religion, it is always about family and about procreation. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the ultimate spouse. He is the ultimate brother. And if we have a deep relationship with him, then we have all the love that we need. And so that's why it is so important that we live out these values in community as the body of Christ. When we lift up marriage as the ultimate thing, what we're not doing is we're not lifting up Jesus. Additionally, Genesis 1, it says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Matthew 28, Jesus tells the disciples something very similar. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of every nation. Don't those things sound really close? You see, the Great Commission is the ultimate fulfillment of our identity and our calling as men and women who bear God's image. And like the Apostle Paul, you do not need to be married to live out that calling. You just need to belong to Jesus.
And in communion, that's what we are remembering and that's what we are celebrating, that we belong to Jesus, that through his life and his death, overcoming the power of sin so that we could live out the identity that he has given us as his valued and loved and commissioned representatives. You see, the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we did not live, as he fulfilled perfectly the calling to be God's image bearer. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he paid the price for all of the ways that we have marred the image of God in ourselves and in others. What we are doing as we take communion is we are remembering the gospel. We are proclaiming who Jesus is and all that he has done and who we now are because of him. Communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you. The Bible is clear that faith in Jesus alone does that. And it's only through him that we can be reconciled to God and be made right with him and to begin to live out our identity and calling as his image bears. You see, you cannot do it without Jesus. And communion is about reminding us that in the gospel we have all that we need in him. And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel this morning, if you look to him to give you your identity and your purpose and to empower you to live it out, then during our time of worship, I would invite you to go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back of the room, and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. Because communion, again, it is a celebration of him and of who we are as his people, as his image bearers. And so as you do, I would encourage you, go and talk with God. Ask him to show you your own sin. Ask him to show you all the ways that you need him. Ask him to empower you to choose the identity he gives you rather than one that you create for yourself. And ask him to empower you to love and to serve others with compassion and boldness, calling everyone to an identity and a life that is only found in the one God gives to us as his valued and commissioned image bearers. For your good most of all his glory in all things. Let us pray. Jesus, we we come before you this morning. God, there is a weightiness to what we've said. There's a weightiness to your word this morning as as we study it. God, and there is a resistance in all of us to submit ourselves to you. God, not just with regards to our sexuality, but with regards to our identity. Jesus, all of us resist putting our identity in you. We look to manufacture our own and to to look to that to be the source of our value and our worth and our hope. Jesus, and we just confess to you that all of us have done that and all of us need the good news of the gospel. So Jesus, we come before you, God, needing you to shape our hearts and to shape our lives. God, we all come before you as sinners who need your grace. And so, God, we pray as we enjoy you, as we enjoy your grace, as we see the the calling and the identity and the purpose that you have given us as your image bearers, as we see that as good news, Jesus, we pray that for our good and for your glory, God, you would empower us to live it out. God, we don't have the power on our own to do that. We say we need you. God, for our good, for your glory, would you make that happen?